Not related to Miss Annie Armstrong, but he is a dear friend of mine, uh, somebody as a young pastor, I entered ministry, and I'm just like, man, who can I ask when I, have, I need counsel or advice or somebody to just, am I in the right ballpark with this, right? And, and Pastor Jay Armstrong has been a dear friend and brother who has answered my phone calls most of the times, no, uh, and always, always gives me very helpful, sound counsel. I think it'll be a big blessing to you guys. Pastor Jay. Are we, are we on there, Nick? Okay, thank you. Well, it is good to be with you this morning, and uh, really appreciate, Todd, what you've shared with us and Jay last night. And um, we've been praying for you as a church. Um, what you're considering, we went through about six years ago. So the process, the challenges, the concerns are familiar to us. And uh, hopefully today I can help you with maybe a couple of things that uh, tend to tend to cause some concern. And uh, the topic I was given was, what is submission? What does it mean to submit? Let's just start with a raising hands here. This is an interactive session. How many of you really enjoy submitting? There's always a few liars in the church, isn't there? But now let's just face it. It's a word that we don't really like. We don't like that, right? We don't typically like the word submit. We think of it as a bad word, as something that causes difficulty. Uh, and we understand, don't we, that the real challenge is us, that the reason we don't want to submit to something is because God made us with a will, and our biggest problems in life are our wills. Amen. We love the Lord's Prayer. We just twist it to say, my will be done, my kingdom come on earth, right? And so we end up with that challenge out oftentimes in the church, do we not? And so that's what we're going to talk about uh, for, for a little while here today. And uh, happy to ask or answer any questions about this later. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for this time together. Help us to realize that submission is the way you designed the universe, that even within the Godhead, there is submission one to the other. And help us to learn, Lord, that when we serve one another properly, submission becomes a normal and natural thing, and it brings honor to Jesus Christ, which is our goal in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I want to give you some examples of what we call servantship. You're dealing with elders as leaders in the church, but let's start with the realization that the word leader can by itself cause some problems. In our Western world, we think of leader as what? The top of the pyramid, something to aspire to. And it can bring some concerns, especially in this particular situation where we just talked about membership, each one another, right? Bible specifically says no one's more important than the other. As a matter of fact, all are important equally beneficial to the body. What part of your body would you give up willingly today? Uh, I'll use, lose my hand or my kidney or my right eye. Each is important. And so when we understand that, we have to kind of come to some, some grips with a few things. Let me just ask you a question. What is, what is the, the word you would tell somebody else that you are when you want to speak to them about your religion? What words would you use? Interactive, remember? That's you and me together. What words will you use? Follower. A follower, a Christ follower. Anybody else? Pastor. What's that? Pastor. A pastor? Soldier. A soldier, okay. Anybody else? Believer. A believer. Anybody use the word Christian? Yeah. And that's what we always think of, right? A Christian. Did you realize that in Scripture, the most common word that is referred to of you and I as believers isn't any of those? It's the word servant. 
which in the English language is not really well translated. It actually means slave. Jesus said this, the greatest among you shall be your what? Servant. But the word means slave. Okay? That's the most common usage that people used of themselves. They were called Christians by others. Okay? Others called them Christians in Antioch, but they called themselves a slave of Jesus. Let's take a look a bit just to get this concept first in our minds, and we'll look at submission. Okay? The meaning of this is a slave for Christ, not one who is a, a volunteer, not one who is a, an employee. Some of you say, oh, you don't know my workplace. I am definitely a slave there. All right? But literally here, it meant somebody that was a slave. The way you and I would think of that word, I don't understand why we don't often use that word or even why our even modern new English uh, versions don't substitute the right word here. But let's just take a look at this in Matthew chapter 23. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. At the beginning of Matthew 23, we'll look at the first 12 verses. This is a passage that I'm sure is familiar to you. And we want to start with the elder, the person who might play the role of elder in your church. That person, too, must be the servant of all. And so Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on, the, on Moses' seat. Well, that's a high and mighty position, isn't it? And they aspired for that. And then he said, do, what they, do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Heavy burdens. Nothing is a heavier burden, folks, than religion. And they were really good at it. Hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, all of the external evidences of their religion. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called a rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man father on the earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, you're familiar with that passage, are you not? You've seen that before. The greatest among you shall be your servant. These were people who played the role of religious leaders in the affairs of Israel, did they not? But they did it all wrong. They sought the respect, the authority, the power that came from some leadership. And Jesus is, as he always does, turning things upside down. In God's kingdom, things work very, very differently. As you're examining those in the church who would be elders, you're not looking for the person who would be the Pharisee or the Sadducee. Jesus said, hey, our righteousness better exceed that. But it is possible in a church that that might be the kind of person that would as aspire to that role. So you have to follow this very carefully. In Mark chapter 10, he went on and said, this is the story of James and John. You remember they were called the sons of thunder? That isn't necessarily a good term, by the way. They were the sons of Zebedee. They came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. Now, that's a lot of gall, isn't it? Hey, Jesus, you know, can I just rub the magic bottle here and have you do what it is I want you to do? That, that's basically what they're saying. What is it, he said, what do you want from me? He said to them, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. 
give us places of honor. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink and be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And he's speaking of his persecution, his, his death, right? And they said, sure, we are able. And Jesus said, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism in which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, that's the other guys, heard about it, what do you think they got? The word here is indignant. And if we misunderstand this whole situation around leadership and servantship, that may be the attitude that a church can take, right? You're now the ten because somebody else is the two, and you're wishing you were on the right hand, left hand, and all of a sudden you have conflict, okay? Jesus calls them all together, and he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A very clear, distinguishing attitude difference. Can you see that? That's what we would expect from those who would be servant leaders. Those who would pursue servantship. Right? That's what we teach. As you begin to identify elders and leaders, you want to train them that it's not about the, the world's view of leadership. It's about servantship. And in God's kingdom, things tend to be very upside down. What's the problem? The problem can be this. The pastor on a pedestal. I grew up as a pastor's son. My whole life was in church. And I watched this. Even when my dad did everything he could to avoid it, we have a tendency to put somebody up on a pedestal. Now, what are some potential challenges of that? In an elevated position, you might fall. And when that happens, everybody goes, oh, as I think it was Pastor Jay said, have you ever heard, the, you know, search the word pastor and scandal? Is that possible? And people are left devastated in the wake of such thing, perhaps because the pastor put themselves there and expected that. And by the way, there are schools of thought and schools of ministry would teach such a thing. I'm your pastor and you must submit. And the attitude is just that. Most of the time, I don't think that's the case. I think it's well-meaning people who the church themselves puts them up there. But having no one to support them, having no one alongside them, no one to hold them accountable, no one of equal stature to work with, all of a sudden they've got some serious problems, and you're going to have a collapse. You're going to have a problem. So the pastor as on the pedestal is a problem. Some of the things that come from that person being in the spotlight too much, here's what happens. It challenges the headship of Christ. How, who, would you all agree with me that the Bible makes very clear that the head of the church is whom? Christ. But if I walked into your church today and said, well, who's the head of the church? How many would say, well, Randy? We've got a problem. We also know it's Christ, so now we have big head Christ and little head Randy. What do you call something with two heads? A monster, right? And yet we try to run our churches that way. It's not good for Randy. Do you really want to say, I'm the head of the church, when Christ says, I'm the head of the church? How do we let Christ be the sole head of the church? How do we serve the great shepherd as shepherds but also as sheep? These are some of the questions you have to wrestle with. But I believe the Bible is very clear on these matters. Right? And I personally believe a plurality elders solves much of these challenges much of these challenges and allows Christ to be head.
Jesus gave us an example, first of all, of the attitude that someone should have. And the example he gave us, as you'll remember, in that upper room at one of the most intimate times that he had with his disciples, he takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around him, and what? Begins to wash the disciples' feet. I didn't grow up in a church that practices foot washing, but we actually practice this as we pull men into leadership, if you want to use that term. It teaches them the humility of service, right? And identifies immediately either a willingness or a reluctance to do that. I mean, let's face it. We live in Hawaii and Maui. How many wear slippers today? Your feet get dirty by the end of the day? I mean, I've seen some of you guys' toes because of the slippers. You know, I mean, do you really want to get into that? Right? But that's what happened in the upper room, isn't it? There's an attitude of service in John 13. So when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and he said to them what? Do you understand what I have done to you? He challenges them. Are you, do you get it? You call me teacher and Lord. Obviously elevated positions. You're our instructor. We're your apprentices. The word disciples, right? We want to learn from you. You're our Lord. A word we don't use today. Maybe you hear it from some British guy, right, who's been knighted or something. But we don't use that word. There they understood what it meant, right? And you are right, for so I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also should do what? Wash one another's feet. It's a critical teaching here in the development of the life of the disciples that they would learn what servantship looks like. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you what? Think about it occasionally. Blessed are you if you give mental agreement to it. We have problems, guys, when it comes to Scripture because our wills, we don't want to obey it. But here he says, blessed are you if you do it. Not leadership, servantship, right? Elders are servants who lead by an example of their service. When you're looking for elders, you need to look for those who have already, I think, taken up the basin and the towel. Who in the church is already exemplifying these kinds of things? One of the basic qualifications, are they willing to be a humble servant? In the New Testament, we see how this was displayed in the leadership of the early church. Let's look at some of the examples. Paul. Would we think Paul is a leader in the early church? Well, God used him to write, oh, maybe half of the New Testament. Fairly substantial person, wouldn't you agree? But consider him, formerly Saul. What do we know about Saul? He was accomplished. He was confident. He was arrogant. He was authoritative. And then he met Jesus. <laughs> Changed his name. Now, all of that religious training might have given him a status, but he introduces himself routinely as what? The slave of Jesus Christ. Now he's Paul. He calls himself the chiefest of sinners, saved by God's grace, a humble servant leader. Look at Peter. What do we know about Peter? <laughs> The other disciple, I think if, we, if we'd had labels, if you could have walked around and talked to the disciples, they'd have called him the mouth. You know, when I was living in Minnesota, they had Jesse the body Ventura. Remember that guy? Big guy. Called him the body. And then he wanted to run for politics. 
And the, he says, I want to be called the mind, as if he had one, right? And along the way through his political career, he just continuously got himself in trouble. Everybody in Minnesota just called him the mouth. That would have been Peter, right? Always speaking his mind, eager, reckless. But he denied Christ, and he was humbled. And after the Lord forgave him, what did Peter say to him? What did Jesus say to Peter? Excuse me. Do you love me? Then what? Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. That's servantship, my friends. What about James? In this particular case, we're talking about James, the brother of Jesus. That's, you know, that's high relationship. If you're talking about the early church and it's the church of Jesus Christ and you're part of the family, right? The family, okay? That's pretty big, isn't it? Not, not James, the, the, the son of thunder, right? But James, Jesus' brother, who apparently led the church council, at least in Jerusalem, right? And by the way, don't get too caught up in church council there. The Bible only talks about the council of the ungodly, the council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you go chase that one down a little bit on your own if you'd like. He had a family name going to him, but what did he say? The slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? What about John? The closest person to Jesus as far as we could tell on earth, right? True friend. The only disciple we know was at the crucifixion. Will you take care of mom for me? Right? He's the elder writing to the churches in Asia. He calls himself a slave who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. That's servantship, my friends. What about how did he get passed on? Was that just the disciples? We'll consider Paul and Timothy. Timothy wasn't one of the early disciples. Paul, by the way, is a disciple born out of time and who was trained specifically by Jesus, was he not? But what about his apprentice, Timothy? The idea of servantship gets passed on to Timothy, who's Paul's apprentice. And he says he introduces them both in Philippians 1 as slaves of Christ Jesus. Same word. When those who would wish to lead the church of Jesus see themselves as slaves of Jesus, I want to assure you a lot can go right in your church, okay? A lot can go right. So what we have to begin with, it has to start with all of us, the congregation and the elders, understanding and the elders then modeling the biblical truth, first of all, that we are not our own. Did you know the Bible says that? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. That's what a slave is, isn't it? One who's been purchased, one who's been bought, one who is owned, owned, bought with a price. A slave is one who is not an employee, not a volunteer. A slave was purchased, and we've all been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the attitude that we need to get into, and we need to see it in the church once again. I hope it's here. I imagine it is. I know many of you, and I believe that's what I have seen evidenced for years here. But you can look at Philippians chapter 2 later if you have time. The mind that we're supposed to have is the mind of Christ who humbled himself, right? Became obedient. Is that submission? Even to the point of death on the cross. That's humility, my friends. So there's some lessons here. And we see it as Paul teaches this to the elders. This is how it was taught in the New Testament. When he speaks to the elders in Ephesus, if you turn to Acts chapter 20, passage we looked at last night, but one I think matters to us in this whole situation. Acts chapter 20 starts in verse 17. Describing elders, he says, you need to serve the Lord humbly. 
from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called, this is Paul, called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. In other words, you saw my example from the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia. What's the next verse, word say? Serving the Lord with humility. So much so, so impassioned, so caring, so intimately connected to the body there, it brought him to tears often. He went through many trials. He went through many persecutions, but they saw him serve the Lord humbly. He taught publicly and personally. He watched out for the body through his preaching boldly, even in the midst of persecution, but also he taught them both in public and in private, in their homes, what is it he was, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, understood that it is the power of God for salvation, the deliverance that would change us, make us alive with God and begin to change us, transform us, delivering us even from sin in our lives, as Todd's just talked about, right? The Holy Spirit began to work through them mightily. He declared the whole counsel of God, and he did that in a couple years. What's the important part of that? You can take a brand new believer introduce them to Christ, discipleship, disciple them, and help them step into church leadership in a few years, guys. You really can't. But we've got a lot of folks in churches that have been parts of churches for 50 years. Don't ever lead anything. Right? Matter of fact, still kind of on the early stages of their spiritual development. Time in a church doesn't necessarily equate to maturity in Christ. Right? Proximity to truth doesn't mean that I've assimilated that truth. But we can teach people. We can raise up servant leaders. And they can continue the work on, right, as they serve one another. They were instructed, as Todd said last night, to be careful about the atten- and give attention to the flock, to care for the flock. What's really important, I think, in this verse here, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who makes elders? All right, interactive here all together, according to this verse, who makes elders? That's correct, the Holy Spirit. The church identifies what the Holy Spirit has appointed, elders. Paul charged them with an awesome and I think a frightening responsibility of caring for the church of God. Why? False teachers were coming and the church needed men who would accurately defend the truth, who could teach the truth and carry on the truth. And then he commends them to God. And I think that's also important. He commended them to God and so should you. As you move forward here in this church and perhaps the Lord leads you to identify elders, then folks, commend them to God. Pray for them, will you? They need your help. They need your prayers. Ask for God to interact with them in his grace. Do you know what grace is? We're very specific about it, Kihei. Grace is God at work on our behalf to help us become and do what we could not become or do on our own. It's not just something that saves us. It's something that helps us live that life, including carrying out whatever role I have in the body of Christ. I need God's grace to do so. Okay? Your elders need that as well. Pray that they would be skilled at bringing the truth of God's word to reality in the lives of people. Okay? The challenge we face today, it seems there's a lot of different kinds of church leadership out there. And the question is, are they all the same? Are they all equal? Does it really matter? Why are we having this conference? Does it really make a difference? We, 
Well, Kihei, 40, almost 40 years before we addressed this. And I'll tell you, we're going to look at this a little bit later, we didn't go into this as intelligently as you are. We went into it as a result of pain. Right? Have you ever heard the phrase, if you don't do something different, you can't get different results? That's called in what? Insanity. We were pretty insane and proved it over and over and over. Okay? And hopefully you won't have to do that. But let's take a look at some of the models that people put out there and suggest are ways that you might you know, have leadership and, 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 and govern a church. The first one's a Moses model. Okay? That's a term that literally says we should do church as the way the Old Testament, Moses, led the people of Israel. Now, the mistaken philosophy here is God, Moses, everyone else. Okay? That makes sense? Very much like what we might think exists in our modern world of business leadership or political leadership. Right now, we're going in that political time frame where we're going to pick a leader of the free world, so to speak. Think about all of the stuff that goes on with that. Do we really want that in the church? Did God ever want that in the church? And so this is a model that looks like this. The pastor is Moses and everyone else. Pastor where? Kind of sitting over top of all these things. I mean, friends, I've grown up in churches. I've spoke about a thousand churches. Let me just tell you something. Some Baptist pastors have more power in their church than the Pope has. Did you know the Pope has to respond to 270 cardinals? There are pastors in Baptist churches that have nobody to respond to, right? Absolute and totalitarian authority. Is that biblical? Based on what we've just looked at, I don't think so, right? In this kind of situation, it's the man of God over God's people. And I believe elders should be men of God. Don't get me wrong, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit, but servant. Servant leaders, right? This model can place the pastor or elder between God and man. Puts the pastor on a pedestal. That can be, as we've talked about, either intentional or unintentional. I think most of the time it, it actually is unintentional, though there are systems where it's very, very, very intentional. Taught that way, and boy, you better bow. And let me get the bully club to help you bow, right? I think it can be harmful both the pastor and the church. It's, it's common in many churches today, including Baptist churches, including what you'll see in Calvary chapels and many others out there, okay? Is it the best model? Is it the biblical model? I don't think so. Another model you might hear of is called the MacArthur model, named after John MacArthur. John MacArthur is a wonderful preacher, wonderful teacher, uh, a solid biblical exegete in my opinion. He's also single-handedly probably ruined more Baptist churches than any person on the planet. Twenty years ago and ever since then, he's offered seminars on this kind of thing, and he would clearly say this, the only decision a church has to make is a decision to, make, to adopt elders and never make another decision. And so what it ends up with is a plurality of elders in a very different situation than what you're being taught here because it eliminates congregational church polity in regards to the decisions those elders make. And it looks a little bit different. Uh, is there a slide there where it shows what it looks like? Can't remember there. There we go. Pastor, by the way, who's often above elders, independent of elders, and then an elders that work a lot like a board of directors, uh, perhaps in an organization or a business, and then everyone else. And there are churches that are run this way, very much like a business. As a matter of fact, I know churches right now, right here in, Mount, in Hawaii, 
that have this kind of situation. The elders serving as directors aren't even in the church. They're on different islands. They're just part of the board of directors, right? Because, well, it works in the business model, right? But is that really what God says his church should look like? And in this kind of situation, you end up with a board of directors, elders playing the role of directors of ministries underneath a senior pastor, right? The whole idea of under. I don't mind under so long as everybody's under because what are we supposed to be? Slaves of Christ. Who? All of us, right? Much like a board of directors in an organization, but my question to you, is the church an organization or an organism? The church is a spiritual organism called the body of Christ. It is a living organism made up of all those who, by the Holy Spirit, are placed into that body, as Todd just taught us. Okay. I think this model functions and perhaps very well, but it fails to reflect what we're trying to teach you here. It's interesting because the three of us have never really gotten together on any of this, and yet what you're hearing is very, very much the same right, in our perception. But that's because, not because we got together and talked about it. It's because what Scripture says, Amen. right? And we have a solid foundation there, okay? The model I think we're trying to help you understand is one called the biblical model pretty good place to be. Let's just stay right there, the biblical model, right? It really teaches one among many, right? One among many when you're dealing with the subject of elders. And it looks very different, a little bit more like this. Elders as members of the body, as sheep in the flock, serving the entire congregation, one among many. I think there's a powerful benefit to the church in this thing called a plurality of elders, I want you to consider deeply what Todd taught you last night, right? It's critical. Can you think of some, uh, perhaps right now, can you think of some uh, benefits of having a plurality of elders? Bad question to ask, Randy. He's like, uh-oh, nobody's got any benefits of this. There are some benefits. Can you think of some? What's that? More servants, right? Yeah? How many churches in Hawaii, especially in our Southern Baptist system, have been, in a sense, in that first model with the pastor here, and you saw this constant departure, and let's go grab another guy from the mainland and hope they make it. And a year and a half later, when their family realizes everybody's back home and they're a long way, and what do we do? Off they go. That was Kihei. Chump, 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 chump. Right? That's the pain we had to deal with. We're saying, why? Is that the way God designed this? that the only ones that can lead us don't exist within the congregation, that he gifted no one else to be able to teach, guide, direct, feed, care for the congregation, and we have to find them through some seminary on the mainland. That's what we had to wrestle with. I don't know your experience. I don't know all the numbers here, but for Kihei, it was a lot. We've been helping Molokai, real struggle over there right now. 50 years as a church, 26 full-time pastors, not including interims and temporaries. How does the church grow, guys? There's a lot of benefits here. How many body parts do you have? I have no idea, but I know there's a couple hundred bones along with a whole bunch of other things that are really important that you don't see that are on the inside. Are they all the same? No. Do they carry out different roles? Do they have different purposes? Yes. Right? Can God gift different people differently? And can he use them for your benefit? Right? And yes, that can happen even amongst elders. 
So it shows a shared leadership responsibility. This is the example that was talked about last night that was set by Jesus. He had multiple disciples. This is the elders sharing responsibility of shepherding and pastoring, protecting, feeding, leading, guiding, and caring for the church. But it says they need to be sacrificial in their service of the body of Christ as one among equals. Take that look at 1 Timothy 5, according to their giftings. Okay? Some will labor more in preaching and teaching. These are worthy, it says, of double honor. I'm not going to address that subject. But what would happen if we serve people well, if we do our work together as slaves well? We'll hear from Jesus say what? Well done, good and faithful did it really say servant there, gang? How many, all of your life you said servant. What does it really mean? Slave, all right? Here we're to be good slaves, and slaves submit to whom? Their masters. Who's the slave here? The church? What about the elders? They're both slaves, right? And this is taught, I think, in numerous passages. So what happens here, if we get this right, then the response, this issue about submission, falls easily into our laps when we don't struggle with it. We understand that submission is God-ordained, that it even exists in the Godhead, okay? By the way, if you have a problem submitting in the church, you're going to have a problem carrying out other very specific responsibilities given, for example, by Paul in Romans 13, submit yourselves to what? Every authority over you. You mean I have to submit to Obama and Hillary or Trump? Well, yeah, actually. Okay? Should give us a clue as to how we're supposed to interact with our elders. Some things that, to think about. We are to show humble submission under God. What is it we're trusting? The elders or God? God. Who is sovereign in this world? God, not the elders. Right? Can we trust Him? If we can identify through biblical qualifications and the Holy Spirit's leading those whom God has gifted and, and appointed, and if we identify them, can we trust that God will use them to our benefit? This is yes. This is no. I'm not so sure. Are you looking, Randy? You're the ones that are going like this. Those are the ones we need to talk a little more, okay? There's submission there, okay? <laughs> you understand that? When biblically qualified elders accurately teach God's word, faithfully setting example of godliness and humbly serving the church under the headship of Christ, don't miss that part, then it is our responsibility as a congregation to identify those whom the Holy Spirit has appointed. They didn't appoint themselves. God gifted them. And then as Ephesians 4 says, he gave them as gifts to the church, okay? We are also responsible to follow their leadership, knowing that they will have to give an account to the Lord for their leadership. Are you one of those men out here who thinks maybe I want to be an elder? You desire a good thing, but I want you to consider this. You're going to have to give an account. It's God's church. It's Christ's bride, and he loves it. Mess with it once and see what happens, okay? They're to be humble servants under God. It's the responsibility of the congregation to cooperate with them humbly, submitting to the authority of scriptures that they teach and that they model, not just the authority of the position, right? The authority is not in the position. It's in God's word, okay? 
Pray for them. Hold them accountable to what? Scripture. One of the benefits of plurality is that they're able to hold each other accountable. What happens when a pastor gets skewed and sits there by himself? The whole church is running off in the woods. Okay? Support those, even financially, who, whose primary role is to exclusively preach and teach the Word. What is it really saying here, folks? We are all brothers and sisters in the church of God. Okay? Elders are fellow Christ followers. They're part of the family, not above it, not outside of it. In many ways, they're beneath it, serving it, along with the help of deacons. We're brothers and sisters in the church of God. That's what Jay was talking about, the familial mindset that we often don't have in a Western world today. So what are the big challenges you might be facing right now? I think one of the biggest challenges is change. How many love change? Okay. That's a big obstacle to many people, isn't it? And moving to an elder-led congregational church can be one of our biggest obstacles. I've been around a lot of churches, folks. I've been in a lot of churches. I've had a responsibility of leading a few, helping in this way. And let me just say something. There are some words you can say that will deflate anybody's energy, and they are these. Well, we've never done it that way, or we've always done it this way. What do those words mean? Tradition above Scripture. Tradition above all else. Right? I mean, do you know the song from the Fiddler on the Roof? Is that one that you include in your uh, you know, Sunday morning worship? Tradition, right? I mean, we get stuck in it, right? Now, there's nothing wrong if those are biblical traditions, but they can be extraordinarily challenging because we are unwilling to change. Couple that with the rugged individualism that Jay talked about that's you know, prominent in our world today. I, doing everything my way, is a problem to change, right? And so, when do people change? Three ways. And you're going to have to deal with this. And perhaps this is what's happening here today. When I want something badly enough that I am willing to change. Now, we ran two women's fitness centers here on the island for a long time, and people would come in when? January, with a deep desire to change. I want a different body, right? The question is, are they willing to change, right? I hope that this church will come to a point that if God leads and guides and directs them through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God in your life, that you see it together, that you will want to change, perhaps, to this kind of church governance. The other way that people change is when we learn something that I didn't know previously. I had no idea how to go about it. But when I learn something, that now I am able to change. That's what we're doing here perhaps showing you from Scripture what it says about how a church can and should be directed through servant leaders humbly serving the congregation, called elders, okay? But in our case, in Kihei, you want to know how we changed? When it hurt badly enough, we had to. That was it. And for us, it was a year and a half process 
It took a great deal of time. We literally, after we'd lost another pastor, stood up in front of everybody and said, I quit and you owe me a whole lot of money and, you know, you name it. Following a couple of pastors before who unfortunately left with the deacon's wife. You know, I mean, those are bad situations. That's pain. Would you agree? And so we gathered 80-some people, 85 people in a room, cleared out the tables and chairs, got on our knees and prayed. For two weeks, that's all we did. And then we said, what are we going to do? Well, insanity be doing the same thing, so maybe we should think about this. And we said, here's what we're going to do. Every Wednesday night for an hour, we're going to open God's Word, and we're going to look up everything we can find on a church, and we ask these questions. What does it say? What does it mean? And do we look anything like this? And at the end of that, we had a pretty good understanding of what God's Word said a church should be, and we realized we didn't look a whole lot like that. And then we had to make some changes. And that required literally what is it that we should be, making that change, building it into a constitution. We brought people together. They, and by the way, that wasn't like, okay, you, you, and you. Anybody <laughs> in fear and trembling willing to take on this responsibility? We did what you would probably do. We went and grabbed our church constitution. We had five. We didn't know which one. It was actually the last one. So we grabbed that one. Right? And it literally had 22 standing committees, and underneath the description of the committee, these words to be determined. So we had 22 committees we didn't have that we were required to have with no description of what they're supposed to be doing. Right? That's not untypical <laughs> of Southern Baptist churches in Hawaii. Right? And then we had to go through the process of change. But hopefully, you won't fear it if you know that it is God that's in it. And you know that God's in it because he describes it in Scripture. And then his Holy Spirit can bring you together in a place of unity. Now, it took a good long while. We went through that process, brought about the new constitution, trained people, presented them as deacons and elders, and unanimously the new constitution was selected, and we started off with elders and deacons. So just a little bit of our story. We'll talk a little bit more about that perhaps in a question and answer. But I think that's the amount of time I've been given. Hopefully that's helpful. God bless you guys. Thank you, Pastor Jay. Uh, all right, we are now on break until 11 o'clock sharp. So get a snack, go to the restroom, drop your Q&As off, and we'll come back at 11.